Right, let's get started. Should we get started? Okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that was very 1950s BBC English. Oh, thanks. It was not it's a compliment. Yeah, that kind of was a compliment. Uh, I guess to you that's a compliment, yeah. Anyway, hey. Hey, now you're trying to be down with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just get on with it. Okay. Welcome to episode 14, which follows episode 13. No shit. Which is the last one we did. <laughs> but that was maybe like two weeks ago. It was just over two weeks ago that we did that. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, lots happened. Should we address the fact that we haven't done one for two weeks? I think we just did. We did say a little while ago, we tried to do these on a weekly basis, but also yeah. some weeks it's just not possible. Uh, last week wasn't possible. Last week was just a bit ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, this week's been a bit ridiculous. Uh, just a bit. Yeah. Still, probably in a week or two we'll have loads of time. At home. How are we going to do that, then? How are we going to do it? Well, that's a question. When we're in lockdown, then... Well, I mean, it is possible to do it remotely. We don't have to be in the same room. And we may oh, I don't know. Time. I don't know if I like that. Well, I'll just do one on my own. It'll be better. What, does Ed on the Asia-Pacific? Ed on the Asia-Pacific. Yeah. Ed and not Nick on the Asia-Pacific. Ed Pacific. without Nick on the Asia-Pacific. No, I don't like that. Oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Maybe I'll do my own, like... Kind of like side one. Oh, uh, go ahead. Let's, you don't even know how to do the editing, so. <laughs> um, yeah, do we have any stats? Uh, yeah, statistics. Well, something odd happened with our last episode, uh, which is by far our least listened to episode yet. Oh. It's not exaggerating to say our listenership fell off a cliff on the last episode. But what is interesting is when we launched, when we released episode 13, the number of people who had listened to episode 12 suddenly shot up. So it's almost like people had forgotten to listen to episode 12. We released episode 13. That reminded them to listen to episode 12, and now they've forgotten to listen to episode 13. So, so maybe, maybe we released this, this one, one, and, and they, they all listened to episode 13. 13. That is going to be really difficult for me to, to deal with in the edit. Can you not do that, please? We have this sort of historical oddity that episode 6 had a, a really low listenership, and for some reason... Episode 6 is, aside from the most recent episode 13, episode 6 has the, still has the lowest... Do you uh, think it could be to do with 13? Could just be. Just our unluckiness. Could be. Yeah. Or we could just be seeing a decline. Or it could be because I titled it Duck Liberation Army and that appealed to a very, very niche audience. Hardcore listeners. Yeah. So if you're still with us, thanks. We appreciate you. Yes. Um, any comments? Uh, there are a couple that we definitely need to address. I think, first of all, we should mention Molly Silk, because Molly Silk left us a nice comment saying she loves the podcast, listens every week, and is often in stitches. Yeah, at, at my jokes, I think. Um, she specifically requested a shout-out, as she's never been shouted out to in a podcast before. Well, so, hello, Molly. Hello, Molly. Now we've rectified that. I hope that's changed your life. So the other significant bit of feedback we got, this is definitely important, is our friend Garrett Norton. You'll be familiar with uh, Garrett's comments in the past. He's uh, yeah. he's a regular listener to the show yeah. and a regular correspondent on our page. 
he's responding to if you remember think back a couple of weeks we did our story about the dog comfort room in osaka airport yes and we asked listeners to let us know if they'd been to osaka airport and what it was like does it smell of we yeah um here is garrett's response in response to your amazement of the dog relief areas wow they're called dog relief areas in response to your amazement of the dog relief areas that exist in airports, they exist in every airport in the US. They are essentially just a repurposed broom closet with some fake grass and usually a fire hydrant for the dogs to piss on. And to answer your question, they smell of dog piss on an absolutely unbearable level. Repulsive, I assume, even to the dogs. Wow. So, thanks for that update, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So basically, in America, dogs just piss in cupboards. Yeah. Repurposed. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, repurposed. Yeah. But does the janitor know that they've been repurposed? Garrett, let us know. Yeah. So we should do critique of the week, but as we're not really doing these weekly at the moment, it's not really critique of the week, is it? We're back on to critique of the fortnight. Yeah, but I think a lot of our stories are within this week, aren't they? I think they probably are. Yeah. So we're not, well, we are going to talk about COVID-19, but I mean, this is not an Asia Pacific story anymore. We said that last time, but I mean, now it's very, very real. We are here, right here at the University of Central Lancashire, undergoing uh, significant adjustments. From next week, I'll be delivering my lectures remotely. (laughs) I want to watch it. So Please send it to me. No, I was thinking about this, right? I was saying to my students yesterday that I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do it technologically wise, but one of the options is for me to go and stand in the room where I normally give the lecture, where there's normally 80 of them, but without any people there. And then I can just sort of visualise them in the room because I don't know where most of them would mm. normally sort of sit and then give that lecture that way. So maybe you could come along and be my audience whilst I give a lecture about what I can't remember. Well, what then you can just what? So you can spread your virus to me? Well, oh, no, you no. might be spreading it to me. I mean, you're sitting less uh, than we two could actually, We could actually have quite a lot of fun with that. With the virus? No, no. <laughs> it doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> no, with, with doing this remotely. Because you could be like kind of football player with an empty stadium, right? I used that exact analogy yesterday. I said it, it's just like playing footballers playing games behind closed doors. Yeah. yeah. So I basically compared myself to Cristiano Ronaldo. No, 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 seriously. If you had to do it remotely, I'd do it. I think it'd be quite fun. We actually do this as a, a videoed pod. Oh my goodness. I don't think we could do a video pod. <laughs> All right, let's crack on. Right, let's crack on. Um, so, Nick, interestingly, we did have a little bit of other feedback, and that links to this question uh, or this topic that we're going to talk about. So, uh, Ruby got in touch. Our old student, Ruby, you remember her very well. I do. An outstanding student of ours. Very much so. Who uh, is going on to better and brighter things. Yes. Um, so, thanks for being in touch, Ruby. I mean, she was looking for a reference. But it's also nice that she got in touch. Um, but uh, she also asked about... She hadn't listened. She was one of those people who hadn't listened to episode 13 yet. And she was asking about our opinions on COVID-19 and North Korea. And uh, funnily enough, of course, you addressed that directly with some predictions and projections yeah. in the last part, in episode 13. And one of the projections that you made, or one of the predictions that you made, was that the kinds of pressures they might be feeling in North Korea, the regime it might drive them to engage in... You referred to a nuclear test, but you also couched it in terms of it could be missile tests. And lo and behold, what has happened this week? We have seen multiple short-range missile tests. Multiple short-range missile tests. Do you feel smug? No, because I'm not you. Oh. Oh, well, aren't you just such a better person than me? All right, can we crack on? Yeah, carry on. Right. So, 
So there's a couple of things on this, actually, I think are quite interesting. One, it does come amidst the, the South Korea cancelling its drills. Um, it's not unusual for the drills for North Korea to be carrying out this time of year anyway. I mean, we are in March. Um, I do think there is a direct correlation between South Korea cancelling their drills amid COVID-19 and North Korea conducting theirs. Um, from, from the, the government's response is still very much that there is no coronavirus within North Korea, though there are um, reports that that's not actually the case. Um, and so, you know, given that um, the conducting of the the, the short range missile tests, I think, is connected very much to South Korea counselling. There's um, my other feeling is, and this came out of the NK News, South Korean NK News, um, was that 200 North Korean soldiers have died and thousands are in quarantine. Which, obviously, if true, um, this is very significant. Where have you seen this? In South Korean NK News. Oh. Um, if that's the case, then I could see potentially this missile testing is actually diversion tactics, which is what I said um, in last what the pod that we did that. But there's no acknowledgement in the North Korean side that this is the case. And I do think that if we are seeing kind of the this 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 high death rate of 200 soldiers, North Korean soldiers, is, I do think this is clearly showing the how porous the borders are. But another actually interesting thing that um, I was that I heard with regards to the North Korea is the possibility of the Kaesong factory opening for mass production, um, and I think that would be very very interesting um, and something that needs to be followed a bit more care- carefully. What are your thoughts, Ed? Where have you read this about the 200 North Korean soldiers? South Korea's daily NK News organisation reported that 200 soldiers are dead. So, what I don't understand is why that story's not been picked up anywhere else, if there's any level Business of Insider is the only, only right. Western one that I've, that's picking this up. The Business Insider just, like, reprints stuff, don't they? Yeah, that's right, yeah. They reprinted mine. They reprinted mine. Bet more people read mine. Um, actually, South China Morning Post have also picked it up. Well, uh, I mean, let's... <laughs> Let's wildly speculate about this for a minute then, because if uh, if that's true and the the source for it is limited, isn't yeah. it? So I mean, there, there's a couple of media outlets that have picked it up, um, but it all seems to come from the one source you mentioned, the South yeah, South, South Korean based NK News, which is not the same as that website. So it's no. the Daily NK, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's it's not the same as NK News. No, that's right. Other website. So if that's true, I mean, two hundred dead soldiers dead so which could be naturally all workers really essentially isn't I suppose it, it could yeah. uh, but it, I mean even if we just take the number of 200 I mean that would put it with the fourth highest death toll so only obviously China Italy Iran have yeah. got more than 200 nowhere else is even close no. to that is it no so I mean that would suggest that the outbreak there is in its thousands it would be in its tens of thousands, thousands maybe even hundreds I mean, if the if the death rate is about one percent and a yeah. two hundred, then yeah, you're looking at at least twenty thousand cases to get to that. Yeah. So, um, so if true, then yeah, what we've got in North Korea is a, a huge outbreak. But I mean, it would make sense that well. So I mean, we did talk about this last time that the possibility of an outbreak getting there. There are. It's easier to limit travel within and into and out of North Korea. Um, 
but even where that's been tried across the rest of the world, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. I mean, COVID-19 is virtually everywhere now. Yeah. So it wouldn't be surprising that it's gone into North Korea, but if it has gone into North Korea, it's not ever so well equipped for dealing with that outbreak. So it wouldn't be that surprising that an awful lot of people had got it. But what would be surprising is to have 200 dead soldiers. The soldiers you would expect would not be in any of the major high-risk groups. So the death rate among soldiers should be lower than about 1%. You should be, I don't want to necessarily put figures on it, but it should should be even lower than that. So that does seem like quite a lot. Um, Maybe we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, but it also explained why the short-range missile testings could be diversion tactics. But, uh, but that actually, again, that fits with your hypothesis from a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. But it. W- but I do want to kind of think about, it. obviously, if we're dealing with a rate of infection that is as high as this, um, it does beg the question whether or not this decision by this bilateral decision to open the case on factory for the production of masks could actually go ahead. That's possible, but it's also all of this seems quite contradictory, doesn't it? Though, because yeah. I mean, the missile test—I mean, any missile test that North Korea engages in—is uh, a tacit threat to South Korea. But if you look at the actual kinds of missiles that they were testing, I mean, they are the sorts of missiles that would be used in any attack on South Korea itself. Yeah. So, I mean, that's slightly more of an explicit threat towards South Korea. Yeah. So it's sort of. It's just a bit contradictory that they would be engaging in that sort of saber-rattling with the South while simultaneously seeking cooperation in order to... And as it is the South Koreans seeking cooperation with the North, I mean, I, but the knowledge that I have is that South Korea, because they're not producing the masks fast enough, and there is an incentive for many of these factory owners to be doing this because they're obviously having to sell them cheaper, that... The solution to this, because actually Kaesong has the facilities there to produce these masks, of which they can be produced cheaper, which is what they are looking for. Um, it could well just be a South Korean incentive to say, oh, let's open up the Kaesong. It might not necessarily be as bilateral as it's being suggested. All a bit speculative, but I mean, that's fine. Yeah. Should we talk about our next story? I'm quite keen to make this pod relatively short because I've got yeah. a billion things to deal yeah. with and I have to do all the editing. Um, so should we talk a bit about the censorship in China because that's yeah. something that's come out there was the report, the Citizens Lab report looking at uh, key words that were blocked on WeChat in China throughout January uh, when COVID-19 outbreak was at its height yes. um, and specifically words that were blocked related to the virus but yeah. also to the government's handling of that virus. Yeah. And so, but also the place right? Right, so also the censoring of the of the city of Wuhan yeah, yeah. Um, so all hands sea monkey. No, sorry, sea market. <laughs> sea monkey. <laughs> sea market. Yeah, because you can't put all hands sea market, right? That's also um, one of the block terms. So do you think if we say these block terms, we this pod can't be broadcasted in? Well, we China? still we still don't officially have any listeners in China, but we know that we do have listeners in China. So yeah. and they've all listened through VPNs. So, so let's see, sea monkey. See, why do I keep saying that? I guess it's not a surprise that the Chinese government are censoring criticism of their response to any particular event in China. That's not particularly new and not surprising at all. I wonder if this is somewhat different because of what has happened. 
So whilst this was this was an outbreak in China, you know we know it started in China, and then the you know the, the by far the most serious outbreak has been in China. Although you know there are now countries across the world who are facing really serious situations uh, out of that. Whilst China has largely got their outbreak eventually under control, so this isn't this isn't something that's solely Chinese. And the spread of the outbreak, I'm I'm not sure that we can say the world wouldn't be facing the situation it's faced if China had reacted more quickly. I don't think we can necessarily say that for certain. But it would surely have been better if they had reacted more quickly, if they listened to the warnings from those yeah. doctors rather than silencing them and forcing them to sign those documents saying they would cease spreading rumours when in fact they were just warning people about a new disease that they needed to know about so that the government right. could react appropriately, which eventually it did. So, uh, but the fact that even after that acknowledgement happened, that the party machinery was moving to censor discussion around these topics, I wonder if this might come back to something you were saying a few weeks ago. If this, in itself, will end up being a problem for maybe for the regime, maybe for Xi Jinping's sort of hold on. It's it's going too far to say. Uh, one might even say overegging the pudding to say uh, it would be a threat to Xi Jinping's hold on power, but it, it's something that can begin to eat away at the perception that he has this sort of iron grip on control in China, and it, it surely does begin to undermine confidence in his leadership, does it not? Sure, but I also think that the the censorship here could also serve another purpose, and it's very interesting that through some of the different lines of discussion from people within people of position i mean to different levels of officialdom within china been putting this more recent one that actually this began in the united states right um and so the censorship between certain things enables that narrative to be consumed more um and this is where there's been quite a fair bit of discussion about this factor about changing the time, the name, which was the Wuhan um, coronavirus to COVID nineteen, and there's there was a, a very kind of big discussion going on, and whether or not that this, yeah. So I just want to stop you because, um, I mean, I, I you know, off off the recordings, you and I have had conversations about this. It's been something that's bothered me because I've seen official. Uh, official communications from this university in the last couple of weeks yeah. still referring to the Wuhan novel coronavirus. Yeah. And I've objected to that because the WHO specifically gave it a name that didn't refer to a location in order to avoid stigmatizations of people. And I think yeah. that that's important. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm pleased that when I raised this with the university here, they immediately moved to, to change all of that. And they've done that, which is, which is great. And I'm happy yeah. that that's happened. But, when the WHO gave it the name, they gave it its first name. It was never officially called that. It was something that had sort of emerged as a, an informal term. But it, it, so it, I guess I'm, I guess I'm splitting hair slightly, but its name was not changed. Its no. name was never anything other than COVID-19. Yeah, officially. Right. I mean, yeah. there, there was conversations obviously around it, but what I'm talking about now is obviously this conversation about actually how that has influenced within the censorship so obviously the term 
Wuhan coronavirus is one of those keywords that are censored, but right. COVID-19 isn't. So it's a way in which that actually is quite convenient that the changing of the name works out. I mean, I 100%, as you know, in our conversations, agree with you about the concept of mm. the, the, the stigmatization surrounding this, actually, that's like, removed it. But it's quite interesting that as seen as wider discussions, I think there is also some kind of false narratives are being put out there uh, by the putting of names or countries' names to global pandemics. So one would be Spanish flu, right? And it's quite interesting yeah. that it's not called Spanish flu because it was in Spain, it was actually at the end of the war. Um, there was still military censorship in France, Britain and Germany, which actually kept the figures low. But Spain was a neutral country and actually the press were free to report on it. So it just seemed like there were more people catching it in Spain than it was. Um, German measles would be another one, but German measles not because it started in Germany it was because it was four, three or four doctors that were actually um, discovered it. Um, and um, so therefore, it, but now obviously we just refer to it as rubella, right? Um, the, French kissing, that's another one. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's a, that's a virus spreader, right? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Apparently we're not allowed to do that right now. No, yeah, you know, we have other ways of doing that. <clears throat> no, we don't. Stand um, down. <laughs> So another one would be Japanese encephalitis, right? Oh, Which yeah. is actually something that we know began in Malaysia, but um, it's clinically, it was first diagnosed in, I think it's 1871 in Japan, but obviously that's not where it came from. So there has always been countries who get, you know, associated to diseases. Um, Beijing roast duck? I think, yeah, yeah. But not really a disease. Well, it's not good for the duck. <laughs> You're absolutely right. 100%. But so I think the key thing here is, is that actually this is an ongoing discussion. And I do actually think this level of stigmatization is being placed on this is actually continuing by, is actually still continuing. Like, okay, why can't we call it this when we still call it Spanish influenza? But I actually think that there is an ignorance actually within people who is, who are making these connections because actually it's not the same thing at mm. all. But I do think it very interesting, very convenient though, that the changing or not, not the changing the um, I do find that there is a, a level of convenience that the official title um, is something that is able to be discussed. Mm. Um, whereas actually the, the way in which that it was being referred to it until it was officially given its title was, it are areas of which do come under censorship. That is a really interesting point. I, I, I do find really interesting what you've just said because the emergence of conspiracy theories, you know, we talked right at the beginning of this, well, you know, very early on in this outbreak, about the various conspiracy theories that were out there, and there was that, that one about um, Bill Gates having the... Um, the patent. The patent for the virus. Actually, I heard again this week about it. It's actually the Rothschilds who have it, and it's, you know, it's obviously there's anti-Semitic tones in that kind of conspiracy. But So we had all those kinds of conspiracy theories early on in the West about this. Um, but then more recently, we had some more coming out of the United States that, you know, this actually, it was a plan by China. And so China, uh, so uh, Trump is still referring to it as a foreign virus, which is kind of, it's, a, it's an odd terminology as if it's, you know, he can build a wall and keep it out. And just as long as it hasn't got any immigration papers, we won't let it in, um, which you know, is obviously insane. Um, but in China itself, we now have these conspiracy theories. You, you sort of briefly referred to it earlier on, but um, I mean, I was looking at a few of these on Chinese social media over the last couple of weeks. Um, 
and there's you know fairly fairly well educated sensible people i would say who who are connected uh, on social media who are actively discussing that this virus did not begin in china and it actually were, was developed in the united states and planted in china and it's part of the american plot to keep china down which you know is a a, a conspiracy theory which sort of does the rounds a lot around china yeah. which is the idea that the united states is doing what it can to keep china down and there is the fear of china and the rising china and so that's where this has come from now the chinese government have obviously not said this explicitly but you're right that they are actively not actively that's the wrong word they are not discouraging this and uh, the little techniques that they have so there was a um, foreign ministry spokesman the other week uh, who uh, referred to it that it might not have begun in china i just sort of threw it out there as a suggestion uh, almost in the same way if you remember when trump was campaigning he used to do the that thing where he would make a wild outrageous suggestion was saying maybe it's this i don't know uh, as if he hasn't really said it but he has said it and he's thrown it out there and that's what he was doing but then what you've just referred to is actually a, a much more insidious thing that they're doing, that, that they are censoring the way of talking about it as coming out of Wuhan, but allowing people to talk about that. So they are fostering this conspiracy theory. Um, and that is, I think, a deliberate attempt to deflect from the criticism of their own handling of the outbreak in the first instance by convincing, by no means all, uh, enough of the population that this isn't really China's fault. Right. Yeah, no, and this is, you know, this is something that I picked up from this particular report. Hmm. That's really interesting. I like that. Um, I'm just going to go pour another coffee. Do you want one? Oh, I would love one. So we've got a coffee. That's nice. Yeah. I did want to briefly touch on the story that came out of Japan about, uh, well, so this is our last bit about COVID-19. So the story that came out of Japan uh, about uh, penalties for people uh, stockpiling and selling on face masks for a profit. And the maximum penalty for doing this is now a fine of a million yen, which is how much money? I can never remember Japanese money. Is it like $10,000? Okay, we were talking about Japan, face masks. Oh yes, sorry, going back to that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that I 10, want to... 10,000. So, so it's a, yeah. So, anyway, the point is, it's a fine of a million yen, roughly $10,000, and or a year in prison for overinflated prices of face masks. So, for hoarding and selling on face masks. Yeah, anyway. So, what's your opinion on that? What about people going to prison for... Yeah. I, I mean... There is a whole conversation at the moment about panic buying, right? And this very, very clearly is a way of preventing it. I mean, the situation in... Is this a way of preventing it? Well, I suppose it is. <laughs> yeah. Don't panic buy and sell on your stuff or you or, go to or prison. Go to prison. Yeah, I mean, right. Um, yeah. But there is a... But, but I mean, the, the situation with Japan is, I mean, this is what happened in 2002, 2003, right? There was a mass panic by with surrounding SARS. I think it's quite preventative measures. I don't... I mean, it'd be interesting to see whether or not there are actually any cases and whether or not that, that you know, an imprisonment of a year can actually be enforced. I mean, obviously, it's clearly a, there as a deterrence, but I'd be very interesting to see whether or not anyone, one, makes an attempt to do it or two, actually is imprisoned. I would think more likely they would have the fine. 
So I uh, I heard somebody the other day right here in Preston boasting about having hoarded a bunch of face masks early on when the outbreak was coming, which they now intended to sell for a massive profit on eBay. And I thought, what a scumbag you are. Yeah. Have you got enough toilet roll? Yeah, I, but I, I... Why are people panic buying toilet roll? I mean, this, it was really interesting. The Tesco CEO was on the thing saying there isn't actually a problem in the supply chain. It was just that we can't get it onto the shelves quick enough. Yeah, of course, because people get... But the, and pasta, is, toilet paper and pasta. Well, so the pasta is because it lasts a long time and people think they might be locked in their houses for six months, right? So they want some food. I guess that's why the toilet roll, because you want something to wipe your ass on. But, but I mean... I, it's, it is just odd that those are the things. It's like, oh, as long as we've got pasta and toilet roll, we can live for six months. Yeah. What about fresh water? What about tea? Tea. I need to get some more tea. Right. Everyone rush out and buy tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tea. <laughs> I don't, I mean, maybe pasta because they think it comes from Italy? That doesn't make any sense. Okay. Why would they be rushing to buy? Oh, you see, I see. No, I get it. I, no, they, that's not the reason. No. It's just, it's... <laughs> Because it's like, rice, what about rice? Isn't that also kind of like pasta in its longevity? Are, are people panic buying rice? People don't know how to make rice. Do you think that's what it is? Westerners, generally speaking, it doesn't apply to all Westerners, <laughs> but most Westerners have no idea how to make rice. Yeah. So what? on panic buying, uh, I remember... So actually, we've just had the anniversary, which passed very, very quietly, and that links to the what is going to be our next topic, but the, the anniversary of the tsunami and nuclear disaster in Japan recently, because yeah. that was uh, March the 11th, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I remember when that happened, because there was a fear of the leaking of the radiation into the sea, and therefore that was contaminating all of the salt in the sea. And so in certain parts of China, including my wife's hometown, there was panic buying of salt. And I remember one, <laughs> which is so funny, because the vast majority of salt doesn't come out of the sea. <laughs> and uh, there was one particular woman who was featured in the local newspaper who bought something like 25 kilograms of salt. What are you going to do with 25 kilograms of salt? Like, that's more salt than you should consume for the rest of your life. What are you going to do with all of that? And then a couple of weeks after the panic buying, she realised that this was a bit mad, and she took it back to the supermarket and asked if she could have her money back. And they said no. And so the reason this was featured in the newspaper was because she'd gone to the newspaper outraged that she wasn't allowed to get her money back. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of hope there's a bunch of people out there who, in three months' time, go, I've got loads of pasta. I'm going back to Asda. Can I have my money back? No, sod off, you idiots. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if people could stop panic buying, that would help. But does panic buying actually help in any way in the short term on... Stimulus of the economy? economy yeah. I suppose, I suppose it helps certain supermarket. I don't know. Interesting. All of a sudden, the profits of the big four have have, have shot up. Tell you what is interesting uh, is the have you seen the satellite photos of pollution in China over the last few weeks? So uh, because of course people are just not driving their cars, and of course flights have been massively limited as well. So air pollution in China has just dramatically changed. So the air quality there. Is, is hugely improved. And you think about it, we've now got suspension of flights between Europe, <laughs> excluding Britain, because, you know, we're all right. Yeah. It's excluding, so Europe and the United States, because, of course, there's no COVID-19 in the US yet. Yeah, so it'll be, it, it, this, it yeah. could be a glimpse into a, a greener future. Yeah, so now if you want to get to from Europe to the United States, you just come here. 
Yeah. Right. So basically, yeah, thanks Donald Trump for increasing the traffic through the UK of potential people carrying the virus. Yeah. So I mentioned anniversaries. Um, yes. The last week also marked the 75th anniversary of the firebombing of Tokyo. Yeah. Um, which is, it's not, it's not an unknown part of the war, is it? But it's it's never achieved the same sort of prominence as the, I think for understandable reasons the Nagasaki and Hiroshima yeah. atomic bombs. I think because they're so well, they're the only instances of nuclear weapons being used in war. So obviously, and but of course they're also visually quite striking those nuclear explosions. So as a result, when we think of the end of the war in Japan, we think of those nuclear weapons. But yeah. arguably of at least equal importance was the firebombing campaign in Tokyo, which clearly deliberately targeted civilians, was a use of widespread use of napalm across the city. Yeah. To, and of course, at that time, many Japanese buildings were made of wood. wood particularly in working class areas. Yeah. So, I mean, so the actual the number of deaths, we don't know precise numbers, right? But the number of deaths in the Tokyo firebombings was probably greater than either of the two. Yeah. atomic bombs that were dropped but it was notable that it was a fairly quiet anniversary this week yeah no it was and i think it i mean there was i think it is a very very as you said a very kind of quiet part of discussions on the war itself i mean in many ways um the firebombing of tokyo was where the idea succeeded where the blitz had failed right mm. the idea of the bombing but i think you know, this idea that flights from the Mariana Islands were carrying clusters of incendiaries that had removed all other forms of armament, which essentially meant that that's what they were designing and intended to do, right? Uh, but the key, the key thing really was, was the targeting of these working class sections, as you just alluded to in Tokyo, which was made up of dense wooden buildings. Um, and the key thing here was to kill the people who worked in the factories when the factories themselves were not being bombed properly. Um, and I think it is. There was an interesting article actually on this in the New York Times um, that actually talked about the fact that American airmen actually hated doing what they were They hated what they were doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, this, this, this was a, a, a major case of the targeting solely on civilians. I mean, you can read the testimonies even if you think also of the nuclear bombs. Then if you read the testimonies of the people that dropped yeah. the bombs, then their own understanding and knowledge of what they were doing is something that they then had to live with afterwards. And I think, yeah, the, um, yeah, so the, I mean, the firebombing of Tokyo, it's not, it never achieved the same sort of prominence, not only of those two atomic bombs, but also the firebombing of Dresden in Europe is something that is more widely known. I mean, yeah. actually less so in Britain. It's one of those things that we didn't learn. I don't, I don't know. Did you learn about that as a child? Yeah, I did learn about Dresden. Maybe not on the same scale as you learn about the Blitz. Uh, right. But I mean, of course, had they have continued, which is when they did it, um, we would have seen the same result of London as we did of Dresden and Tokyo, right? right? But it's the fact that at the height of the the fire, the, the the fires burning in London. I mean, they actually had stopped. We what we don't really know is whether or not they were doing this on the grounds that actually this is what's going to happen, or for what other factors. But um, yeah, I mean, I do agree with you. I think that the conversations around Dresden are far more prominent. But um, I do think that for people who do look at the Second World War in an East Asian context, 
are aware of this. I mean, it isn't one of those things that's just not documented. I think yeah. in general history of the Second World War, yeah, I'd absolutely agree. But I think the Pacific Theatre side, it, it tends to be excluded in many factors. Um, and this just happens to be kind of one of them. But I do think, yeah. And I think in terms of the airmen, obviously the airmen were, in this case, very much aware of what these incendiaries would be doing. People didn't know what the the dropping of the atomic bomb would look like or the effects it had because it never had been done before. Mm. Um, whereas obviously the airmen that were dropping the incendiaries on Tokyo very much knew because of what happened previously in Dresden and in the case of the Blitz in London. So why do you think it is that Japan has... I mean, there, there was, you know, we saw some limited vigils in Tokyo to mark the anniversary, but very quiet, low-key, no sort of massive public commemoration. There also isn't, you know, if you go to Nagasaki and Hiroshima, I'm sure I'm sure you'd have been to at least one of those places, and you go to the, the peace museums that they have there, yeah. documenting everything that happened in the, the nuclear bombs, and they, you know, there's, they both have some peace gardens and places where you can... Um, learn about and then reflect upon the impact of nuclear weapons and uh, so those places are sort of dedicated to making sure that that never happens again anywhere in the world. But there, there, I don't, there isn't an equivalent in Tokyo for what happened, is there? Not that I know of. So, uh, why, I mean, why do you think that is? I mean, I, I've, I'm always against uh, measuring and evaluating wartime events on the sheer number of casualties. Um, having said that, if you look at the number of people who died in the Tokyo firebombings, because of the sheer number of people that were killed, you would expect that that event, or I guess series of events, would be in some way marked and commemorated because it's on a, on the same sort of level as the nuclear bombs. Right. But, it, I mean, it just isn't. No, my feeling is, and this is just my interpretation is that it's much easier to commemorate a single event rather than to commemorate multiple events as a way of, um, you know, keeping a particular kind of focus. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're kind of watering out if you have an event here and an event there. Um, like when we talk about the UK, obviously we talk about the Blitz and it's, it's typically centred on London, but, you know, we, you know, Coventry was flattened right mm. um and so we you know yes you have these local kind of areas but it's not necessarily done on a national scale they typically would focus on you know um on particular kind of events so obviously in in the german context obviously there is this concentration on the bombing of dresden right um and so the, again with the holocaust i mean there's yes we have a number of different camps but then auschwitz becomes the kind of the key right in the discussions on it right um and so maybe maybe that's a that maybe that's a reason that's a, a reasonable hypothesis i think so i think we're going to keep this pod quite short because yeah. uh we need to move on and prepare for the coming lockdown um do you have an oddity for us nick um no um i don't think there's been anything fun in the news recently. It's all been a bit shit. Oh, well, that's quite a depressing way to end this pod. Well, um, I don't have an oddity for you, but I do have an oddity update, which hopefully will give us something to smile about a little bit. So do you remember several weeks ago now, I can't remember which episode this would be, uh, but we talked about um, Kazuyoshi Mura, 
Do you remember this guy? The football player. The football player, yes, absolutely. Who is now like, 53 years old. Oh, I was going to say, like, he's now 110. <laughs> well, he's, he's aged 57 <laughs> years in the last few weeks. No, who's now 53 years old. And um, the reason we commented on him is because he was, uh, he'd scored a goal and uh, had reinforced his place. I mean, he signed a new contract and reinforced his place as the oldest professional footballer in the world. You recall that story, and that was yeah, quite yeah. a story that tickled yeah, I like that. Um, well, the news is he is no longer the world's oldest professional footballer. We have a new record holder. Unfortunately, from our perspective, not from the Asia-Pacific, but given that it surpasses our man from the Asia-Pacific, I thought I would update us on this. So, Ease Elden Bahdir, forgive my pronunciation, um, he's an Egyptian... And he signed a contract a couple of months ago and made his debut last week, scoring a last-minute equaliser for his team in a 1-1 draw. How old do you think he is, Nick? 82. (sighs) He's 75. Are you kidding? No. 75 years old. And he's, he's, um, the Guinness Book of Records has determined, because they are the arbiters of what a world record is, for some reason, uh, that, uh, he would need to play two full matches for a team that pays him a wage, uh, in order to qualify. Um, and so he, he played the full 90 minutes in his debut. And as I say, they got a last minute penalty and allowed him to take it. And then he was mobbed by his, um, I'm sure that's pretty But is that really a thing? So if you were a football player, a professional football player, and you play one game, for whatever reason, you couldn't play a second game, you would never be classified as a professional football player? By the Guinness Book of World Records. But that's re- I mean, that's not going to be surpassed, is it? Unless we just start well, getting so, older. So there's, there's our thing. So our guy, Miura, so he's 53 now. I mean, so He's got another 20 years career. We will be on episode... Who knows? 16 by the time he gets there. Oh, I'm totally following his career. He's got like yeah. another 20 odd years. Absolutely. So maybe this is a big motivation for him. It's something for him to aim at now, isn't it? Yeah, he's Good a young day. player. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Kind of puts us to shame, mate. Puts you to shame, mate. Us. I run half marathons. That's not a measure of all things, is it? It's not a measure of all things, but it's certainly an indication of fitness. Of course, but you can play professional football. Well, I couldn't play professional football because I'm not very good at football. I could get fit enough to play professional football. Do you think so? Um, in your 70s? Well, I don't know. I mean, ask me in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, truthfully, I don't know when we'll do another one of these because um, the situation in England is moving to a more serious stage and um, we don't know how often we're going to be able to meet in future, Nick. I know. We just Let's just go to the Winchester. Where's the, what? If we're back in, look, we don't know when the next one of these will be. It might be next week. It might be in three months. We might never do it again. You never know. So, um, so elbow handshake. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a that's not a good sound for the pod. What us? It's just you clacking, clacking elbows. Um, it's good knowing you, mate. Yeah, I wish I could say likewise. Anyway, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. Let's hope we do.